like an animal, talks like an animal, must be an animal, come hear the animals, talking animal, talking animal. Good morning. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss, and my guest today is Kristen Hassan, Director of American Pets Alive, through which she oversees other projects and initiatives, including Human Animal Support Services, or HAWS. Hassan is a highly respected figure in the animal shelter world, owing to her accomplishments and innovations over the years of major stints leading or helping lead animal facilities. These include positions as Assistant Director at Fairfax County Animal Shelter, Deputy Shelter Director at Austin Animal Center, and Director of Animal Services at Pima Animal Care Center. The job has been held just prior to assuming leadership of American Pets Alive and Haas. And while our conversation today will likely address Hassan's background and some key phases of her career, a focus of the discussion will be the Human Animal Support Services and its mission, which aims to not just improve but reinvent animal services in the realm of sheltering. We'll explore these topics and more when I speak with Kristen Hassan in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. And later in today's program, I'll speak briefly with Scott Trevor Coincidentally, a shelter leader himself, he's director of Hillsborough County Pet Resources Center. But the focus of our conversation today with Scott will be SB 60, a bill Governor DeSantis recently signed into law that appears to remove the cloak of anonymity from code enforcement reports, which raises questions about to what extent the new law will prevent anonymous reporting of animal abuse and whether animal abusers could readily locate the name and address of those who report them, thereby seriously discouraging such reporting. We'll sort this out with Scott later in today's show. Right now, though, let's discuss animal services, sheltering, and more with Kristen Hassan with a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. This is Kristen Hassan on Talking Animals on WMF. Good morning, Kristen. Good morning, Duncan. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for uh, joining us today on Talking Animals. So, of course, we'll get into the Human Animal Support Services in a moment or two, but because animal welfare and sheltering and related issues kind of constitutes a pretty substantial storyline of your life, I'd like to start by going back a number of years. Working in animal welfare called to you, I think, pretty young, pretty early, at 19, if I'm not mistaken. So, so I guess I first want to ask, what did animals mean to you as an as a even younger kid than that? I mean, what role did animals play? play for you when you were growing up? Yeah, well, so I was a uh, survivor of childhood sexual violence and other forms of violence. And as a very young child, animals were really, they were my witnesses, they were my protectors, and they were my best friends. They were the only ones that knew what I was going through. And I share that because that experience is shared among many of us who now work um, in the profession of animal welfare and save lives uh, for a living. And so from very early on, I had a connection with animals. And I really always, even as a little girl, imagined that someday I'd be able to pay it forward to uh, animals that needed my help getting out of bad situations or um, getting out of shelters alive. So I, I was drawn to animal sheltering um, from a pretty young age. Yeah, okay. Well, that really squares because I just think uh, knowing a little bit about your career and what you've done and the path you've traveled, but it really 
really part of that was that there was definitely something of a precocious interest in animal welfare, and then that's kind of continued to sort of drive your interest in your career well, since. Yeah, I mean, so at 19, I, I was a real animal lover. I, I think I had owned every pet at the pet store. But uh, I went to work in animal welfare thinking I was going to get to save cats and dogs and instead found that my entire job was uh, revolved around euthanizing healthy, adoptable animals. Yes. Uh, because in the late 90s, in the Midwest, that was uh, most of what we did. Uh, so I did not last long. I think I, I lasted in that first job for about six months and then wore off animal welfare altogether because I thought the last thing I want to do is kill animals for a living that, that I that I wanted so badly to save. So I, I left animal welfare um, shortly after first entering the field. But even that, I think uh, probably even just a half-baked uh, armchair psychologist could sort of trace that to kind of what later when you got back in and what's kind of driven your, your particular focus uh, subsequently, no? Absolutely. I, I really, when I came back into the field in 2012, things had changed quite a lot. Thanks so much to many of my predecessors and mentors, I'm sure many of whom have been on this call. And because of that, it was a time where we could break, uh, we could break through some of the old uh, rules and problems that caused mass euthanasia of uh, adoptable animals. And so I came back um, really in order to, to make sure that every animal had a chance to get out of a shelter alive and, and really did focused on that um, as a core mission for a number of years. And at the time, we were fighting uh, pit bull adoption restrictions. We were fighting uh, big dogs in general being really at risk, along with any cat that wasn't social. And so I think over the last decade, what's really exciting is we've seen so much progress made in those, those areas because what we learned is the community wants those pets. So we just have to we have to make it possible for them to adopt them. Well, obviously, we're going to spend a good hunk of time talking about that and, and how how that's being implemented and realized uh, now. But one of the things is, I guess, when you when you dove out, when you just couldn't uh, believe, like here here you were involved with all these uh, animals being euthanized, and it's like, hey, I didn't I didn't get in for this, and then I guess you got a a graduate degree and began working in the park system, but was it just kind of always like, this is what I went to school for and this this seems like a good career, but I, I get the sense for you, it was kind of like at some point, parks, schmarks, I'm passionate about dogs and I want to see if I can come back and give this another whirl. Yeah, so I did my graduate work at The Ohio State University and studied human gentrification and displacement, so people being kicked out of their homes and communities. So it's actually really relevant to the work I would get to do later because uh, really it's, it's all about the people that own the pets. Yeah. Um, but that laid the groundwork, I think, for animal for my work in animal welfare. And I was briefly working um, in a large park system, and that work was really exciting too because it was giving people access nature, which I, I think is another passion of mine. Um, but animal sheltering really was always where it was at for me. And so the chance to go back uh, and save lives, not end them, I, I jumped at it. So here's the thing. Uh, we're going to move forward in a sec. But I guess I'm sort of curious, especially with the kind of false start that you had and then went off and did the, the, the graduate degree and then the parks and stuff and then ventured back in. When you kind of reflect on the arc of your career, do you view your milestones? Because, again, as I noted in the introduction, there have already been a lot of innovations and achievements that you've uh, brought to bear. But do you look at your milestones as particular accomplishments or do you see those milestones kind of as dogs of one kind or another? Well, I think that I've always approached 
my career in animal welfare as, uh, with a core belief that the system that we're working in is fundamentally broken. And so when I look at the successes that I've had, it's by saying this is broken and we don't just need to reform it, we need to profoundly change it. Um, and so I think that when I when I think about things like overturning pit bull restrictions, um, building the nation's largest foster program, uh, and some of the other accomplishments I've had, it's really been the belief that we need to just tear it all apart and start over. Yeah, I just figured in some ways someone that's as passionate about dogs as you are you would sort of look at things in some ways as dogs that you save and you're saving more and more obviously and then early on obviously there was dogs that you wanted to save but but just because the nature of the system then in particular couldn't save so that's what i meant about the dogs as milestones kind of but uh this is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you just tuned in, my guest is Kristen Hassan, Director of American Pets Alive, through which he oversees other projects and initiatives, including human animal support services. A big focus of our conversation will be animal shelters, some fundamental problems with them and how do those are being addressed um, and mitigated. So if you'd like to ask Kristen a question or offer a comment, please call 813-239-9663, email dj at wmnf.org, or text 813-433-0885. So as I also alluded to kind of in the opening, the path you travel has involved running or helping run an animal shelter and then moving to the next. So did one sort of necessarily kind of beget another and you're just saying, okay, well, let me let me go to the next one where I think I can maybe make even more inroads than I'm able to here? Or was there just sort of a a restlessness or sense of mission that was driving those moves? Yeah, I appreciate that question because it's something I've reflected on quite a lot. And I think that what has driven me is to go to the hardest shelters. I really wanted to learn how to fix the toughest ones because it was sort of my thinking that if we could fix the hardest shelters, the high volume, high intake shelters where in communities with um, intense systemic poverty, and other issues that if we could fix those, we had a shot at fixing some of the others. And so my trajectory has been to go to bigger and harder shelters uh, in the hopes of really learning the most important lessons. So how would you say that your that you or your vision has been shaped by those shelter jobs, those kind of stops along the way to where we are today? What I think is really important for your listeners to hear is that the animal shelter system is um, more than 150 years old. It's changed very little, and it desperately needs to be transformed because it's built on this idea that in order to help an animal, we have to take it away from its family, out of its home, and out of its community forever, and we have to permanently separate it from the people who know and love it. And that is the closest parallel I can think of is if if you can imagine the U.S. relying entirely on an orphanage system and never never having innovated to have programs to keep kids in their homes or programs to send kids to foster. And so what we have is a system that relies on institutionalization as its core mechanism, um, and that that is really at the heart of the problem. And so the the work that we that I have done, and I think over a decade of running shelters, the lesson I've learned is that that's the shift that needs to happen, is that we actually need to turn the community into the shelter and get rid of this idea that the shelter is somehow at the heart of helping pets. So that's really like when I said early on, like reinventing, it's a whole fundamental kind of perception that needs to be flipped flipped around. Is that right? Yes. All right. With that in mind, let's dive into at least briefly American Pets Alive, and, and then we'll get to human animal support services. But what is American Pets Alive, and what is its mission? 
Well, here in Austin, we have run Austin Pets Alive for about the past 15 years. And uh, the mission of Austin Pets Alive was to make uh, Austin the safest city in America for homeless pets so that no pet would be unnecessarily euthanized. And uh, Austin Pets Alive accomplished that. And so American Pets Alive started about six or seven years ago, really making an effort to expand the programs that are proven to work throughout America. And we focus our efforts on the worst possible places. Uh, And those are places where mass numbers of animals are dying. The life release rate is still 20 to 30% in some cases. And the shelters desperately need help. And so we we're sort of like Doctors Without Borders in that way, and that we're just going to where we're most needed and trying to help solve uh, problems and create more long-term sustainable change. So our, our team uh, travels around the U.S. Most recently, a couple of our team members were at Laredo, and you may have seen Laredo in the news recently. They they made the news for some pretty uh, terrible conditions within the shelter. And so our team, instead of just criticizing them and condemning them with a lot of the uh, local uh, news did, we went down and helped and got uh, about 150 animals out immediately, many of them coming to Austin and many others getting on flights and being distributed throughout the country. So Um, We're there to really prevent the worst-case scenario for hardest-hit organizations. And is the shelter crisis, I guess is kind of how you've referred to it, so dire that the only way to truly address it and mitigate it is to have freestanding kind of organizations focus on it full-time, in other words, versus individual shelters that are trying to make improvements, implement new policies, whatever, but they're still... There's still shelters day to day, and there's obviously only so much probably that can get done in terms of really modifying what they do internally like that when you're when you're struggling with all the day to day requirements of, of being a shelter. So is that kind of part of the what underlies this and, and human animal support services is that an organization that's specifically devoted to making those kinds of changes, making recommendations, reaching out to shelters, and then helping them make those changes from that distance. Well, American Pets Alive is there to help get animals out alive. And so our focus on that is getting animals out of shelters alive. And the problem, one of the things your listeners may not realize is we have this idea that there's pet overpopulation. And um, unequivocally, I want to say there is no pet overpopulation. It does not exist in the United States. There is a pet supply and demand issue. So there are more people wanting pets than we have to get them pets. The problem is, is that the majority of the population is concentrated into a few states and a few pockets, and there are real challenges to getting them out. And so what we're aiming to do through American Pets Alive is work on a a truly national collaborative transport strategy to get animals from places where there are too many to places where there aren't enough. Um, And that is a heavy lift. Nobody's really done it successfully, although... Uh, many of the national orgs um, do valiant work in this area, including the the ASPCA, Best Friends, and many others. But we don't we don't yet have a real collaborative national strategy. And if we would do that, um, we would have solved a lot of the problems that are leading animals to die in shelters. And speaking of the, um, I guess, sort of uh, myth or, or misunderstanding about the pet overpopulation situation, as you, as you described it. The big trumpeted shelter story during the peak of the pandemic was the dramatic uptick in adoptions. But isn't there a sequel to that story that's not nearly as reported and, and not nearly as upbeat? Well, so 
so there were a number of articles that came out about the, quote, return of the pandemic puppy. And this was pure mythology. The story, for whatever reason, felt tasty uh, and came, blasted into the media and was picked up by a number of outlets. It didn't happen. Um, there is no data or evidence from any organization to show that there was a massive return of pets adopted during the pandemic. And in fact, return to shelters is something that we deal with every day. The rate is anywhere between 5 and 20%, depending on the shelter you're working in. And none of that has really changed significantly. However, another factor has come into play, and I think that one is really worrisome, which is that we haven't even seen the formal end of the eviction moratorium federally. And people are having to work more jobs. They're having to move in with family members or into smaller places. They're losing their housing entirely and being evicted. And I think the housing crisis is going to be the real conversation in animal welfare because people don't want to give up their pets, but they're finding it harder and harder to have housing where their pets can live any sort of life. So this goes back to, again, some of the stuff that you studied really in in school and where those things intersect. Yes. And so the first part of the story then, I guess, is that there were a lot more adoptions during that time. But I guess the second part, uh, like a lot of things, is is not as is not as clear cut as what's been uh, intimated about what's what the the return and and some a dramatic number of returns beyond what would be expected, sort of day to day at a shelter. Is that is that do I have that right now? Yeah, there's no, there's been no, there's this, this, it's, it is really missed, um, and. It's important to frame it that way. And it's a problem because that myth leads people to believe that we can't solve this. It leads people to say, well, you know what? It was good, but it resulted in this. Let's not try anymore. And what what our message to the public is, is we need to try together and we need to try harder than ever because we know we can prevent mass euthanasia of healthy adoptable animals, but we can't do it without the whole community coming together. So covid 2020, the silver lining was that we saw the most life-saving year ever for shelter pets. So now we've proven we can do it. We've proved that we can save most uh, every uh, shelter animal. So now it's it's finding a way to sustain that despite the massive challenges that continue to be caused by the COVID pandemic. So even though that was kind of tied to a, a singular phenomenon in some ways, what you're saying is that Nonetheless, it shows that it can be done so we can still do it even without that singular phenomenon being present. Yeah, because I, I think a lot about telehealth, um, human tele- telemedicine, and um, because it's really closely related. So the biggest barrier to telemedicine historically has been doctors themselves um, and the medical industry. People want telemedicine. And it's similar with animal sheltering. We as animal shelter professionals have been our own biggest barrier to getting animals out alive. We haven't solved the transport issue. Uh, we make it really hard for people to adopt. There was an article in the Times recently uh, about just how difficult it is to adopt a pet. It's why yeah. people are going to breeders. Um, and so we are in many ways our own worst enemy. And and so what we're saying is don't tell us something's impossible when we've already shown we can done it. Tell us do it again, how we can continue to do it. And, uh, and so we're thinking what we believe is that what we saw during COVID is the future of animal sheltering, but it's going to take a real shift, not just on the part of shelters, but on the part of the public. And I, 
I when when it's appropriate, I want to talk about a particular example of what I mean. So, uh, but I'll stop there for a minute. Okay, great. Well, no, because I have some more questions. I definitely want to hear that, and I want to delve further into uh, Haas in one sec. But let's get one of our callers uh, involved in the meantime. Hi, you're on the talking out with Kristen Hassan. Hi, Duncan. Uh, Kristen, I really appreciate your uh, efforts, especially on behalf of the of pit bulls. I have two. One was a stray, one a rescue, and they're both phenomenal dogs. And everyone I know who has a pit bull loves them to death. Yet, strangely, you know, when you go to a shelter, I when I when I went to the shelter to get my last uh, dog, I saw many, many, many pit bulls there. And the problem is, you know, even if you watch television shows like animal shows that feature dogs, you rarely see a pit bull with the exception of Caesar Milan's show. He has his main dog is a pit bull. But could you address that? The, uh, the You know, maybe as a, <clears throat> keep in mind the Michael Vick debacle and the Sports Illustrated uh, article that sort of really stigmatized the breed. Uh, could you speak to that and how that sort of, re- you know, the idea of rehabilitating the image of this really fantastic dog? Okay, great. Thank oh, you. Th- so. Thank you for your question. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks so much for that question. Um, and Duncan, as you mentioned, uh, there's nothing I'm more passionate about than uh, big dogs, particularly dogs called pit bull dogs. Uh, so I really appreciate the question and um, glad that you uh, have two of your own. Um, so, yes, I think that the I was just sitting down to write an article called We Have to We Have to Start uh, We Have to Stop Throwing Pit Bull Dogs Under the Bus. We Have to Stop uh around what is not even a breed of dog, but rather a mix uh, of one of, of several of 20 breeds of dogs that show up in shelters. And when you look at the DNA of dogs in shelters today, most uh, dogs will have some Staffordshire Terrier or American Bulldog or some breed that can give them physical features that make them look like a, quote, pit bull. And as we know, pit bull is not a breed of it's merely uh, used to describe a, a visual type. So I would say that we need to go back to the core work done by Animal Farm Foundation. Um, if you haven't visited their website, it's animalfarmfoundation.org. Uh, they have not been uh, very vocal about this in the last couple of years, but they did, they have done so much important work uh, to, to assert this idea that all dogs are individuals. And that message has not changed. Every single dog in a shelter should be considered an individual. And anything else about them other than how they look? Yes, uh, breed restrictions uh, abound. It's getting harder and harder for people to keep dogs that have a certain appearance in their homes. And then the, the media hype around dog attacks. I was just looking at a dog attack um, story, and the, I don't think the breed of dog was even defined, but they chose this stock photo of this giant, terrifying pit bull type dog that had like muscles that I've never seen on any animal before. And that photo gets used over and over and over again in these stories, even though we never see the real dog. So these kind of things don't help and they really scare the public. Uh, We hear uh, over and over again, I I, I feel worried. I feel scared because of what I read. And so what we encourage people to do is come and meet the dogs. If you don't know, or you're unsure, come and meet the dogs and let someone introduce you to to them because every single dog is different and that's regardless of its, its breed or the way that it looks. And just to add one thing to your observation about the Animal Farm Foundation and, and especially their fundamental message, which I think is all of our f- fundamental message, hopefully, which is all dogs are individuals. But I, I've talked about this a few times over the years where some years ago now I, I went to some kind of conference and 
uh, there was a presentation by Animal Farm Foundation. And one of the parts of that was they were showing a handful of slides of dogs and the audience was asked to figure, just not necessarily call out, but just determine in their own way, uh, pit bull related dog, not pit bull related dog. And they went through some that some of the classic things. And then there was a dog that looked like our yellow lab. And, uh, you know, turned out that had as much pit bull dog in as any of the more sort of classic looking pit bull dogs that had also been up on the screen. So to me, it was a lesson that really stayed with me is that, again, dogs, uh, like you say, are individuals. But even their appearance, uh, you can just like with people, I guess, just jump to conclusions and be dead wrong. Absolutely. When when we as animal shelter professionals guess a breed of a particular dog, we who work in the business are wrong half the time. Um, and that is really striking. We don't even know what we're looking at. Uh, yet all of these stereotypes abound and they're, you know, this is not, this is tied also, I just want to mention, this is tied to racism and classism and yeah. stigmatizing the folks that um, are seen to own these dogs. And when you see how pit bull owners are talked about, um, there's a real history there with uh, with the um, with stigmatizing dogs who are thought to be owned by people who are also stigmatized and marginalized. So um, none of this is disconnected, and it's why we go back to the importance of looking at the whole picture. Uh, we can't just look at the animals in isolation of the leash. Yeah. Well, two two quick things, and then we're going to dive all the way into Haas, I promise. Um, one is that in terms of what you were talking about, in terms of class and all kinds of other elements that are super important, one of the best, uh, I think, st- sources or, or certainly books about that is by Bronwyn Dickey about the pit bull. So if you haven't read that and find this kind of thing interesting, that... that really an highlight. important book. Yeah. And the other thing is a text just came in that said, or email, as the owner of an eight-and-a-half-year-old Staffy, who is probably the sweetest creature I've ever known, thank you so much for the needed clarification and kind words about quote-unquote pit bulls. That's in Charles in Tampa. So, okay, Kristen, let's let's dive into Haas. Tell me about Haas in whatever way you want to start or whatever that example that you kind of had in your back pocket, and then we'll go through some other elements of it as well. Animal Support Services is this, um, it starts with this belief that the system as we know it is antiquated. It doesn't work for pets and people. It was born out of a time in the 1800s in the United States when the goal was to round up massive numbers of free roaming dogs and to kill them via drowning, via gas, uh, via other methods. And so that is how the system was born. And that is how the original dog pounds were created. They were just places to hold animals before they died. And we've just made such a massive shift in our country. We know 65% of people living in the U.S. approximately own pets. Um, most most people engage with or love pets, and they love them like family. And so Haas is the belief that we can and must do better. It's not. It's no longer acceptable to do things the way we have always because the way we've always done things um, caused a great deal of suffering and death and separation of pets and people. So Haas aims to keep pets with family even when those families may be struggling or need extra help and to keep pets out of the shelter system. Um, And I guess the way that I think about this is when you go to a shelter and you surrender a pet, you are permanently and completely separated from that animal. So if you can imagine you've lost your home, you've been evicted, and you have no options for your dog. You go to the shelter and you have to sign that dog over, not knowing if it lived or died, not knowing who got it, what happened to it. That is not humane for people or animals, and it's absolutely not necessary. And so 
has to, how could we do that differently? Well, we could have that person, if they truly can't keep their animal, we could help them rehome it so that they can follow that pet story. Or if they can keep the animal and just state challenges, could we pay their rent deposit? Could we help them find pet accessible housing? And so Haas aims to really solve the problems that lead to the animal coming into the institution in the first place. And is that partly just the example you gave there, Kristen, is that predicated on that's often at least the issues where a family might say, oh, we, ha- we don't want to, but we have to surrender our dog, that sometimes those situations that require that, again, housing related, especially uh, are often sort of temporary, I mean, a crisis nonetheless, but temporary, so that if, if, if Haas can help them, like with that rent or whatever the, the issue is that's seemingly forcing their hand to surrender that dog and get over to that, that crisis, that hump, that then the dog and the family can stay together. Absolutely. One of the things that, in running shelters for 10 years, one of the situations that just broke my heart was that We would have pet owners who did not have health insurance or did not have adequate medical coverage. They would need hospitalization or surgery. They would need to have a heart surgery or something that would save their life. But if they couldn't find someone to help them watch their pet, they would rather die than go into a hospital. And this is not an infrequent situation. And so what we're able to do through Haas is offer those people, hey, we have someone that will foster your pet for three weeks so you can get you, the surgery you need, you can get well and you can bring your pet home. And so it's really saving people's lives too. Um, and because people love their animals like family members. And any of you who are listening are probably nodding your head saying, absolutely, my, my pet is my family member. And we have got to wake up to that in animal sheltering. We have got to stop treating animals like they're disposable or that people don't love them. And and I feel, I, I feel really honored to get to fight that fight because in media, We hear these stories, oh, people don't want their animals anymore. They're going on vacation. That is not what happens in an intake lobby. In an intake lobby, the majority of people are having the worst day of their life, and they are crying, and they don't know where to go for help. And and what we're saying is we can help and tell us what you need. And is, uh, apart from that that particular person who was fortunate enough to run across you or extensions of Haas or whatever, then saying, "What? How can we help you? Let's let's see if we can, you know, reverse course here, so you're not surrendering that dog today." But is a, is it more generally that things? It's kind of one of those uh, kind of lameo things of, "Hey, it's always worked this way," so people don't understand that that it can work differently if you just uh, are aware or do a little bit of homework or just try to find a place that doesn't operate the same old way so that it doesn't have to just be perpetuated the, the way that the, the limitations and worse of shelters are still in place. Yeah, I think our communities are taught that the first thing you do is bring an animal to the shelter. You find a, a lost pet, what do you do? You drive it to the shelter. And we have trained uh, ourselves and each other to rely on the shelter, but we never think about what else we could be doing. And that's all we're really doing is harnessing, okay, so instead of bringing it to the shelter, you could walk it around the neighborhood. We know that most lost dogs are just a few hundred feet from their home. You could go scan it for a microchip at a veterinarian. You could upload a sound report online, and you could hold that that animal for 24 hours. And the, in all likelihood, you're going to get that pet home without the stress, the exposure to possible disease, um, and all the other issues that come when a pet enters a shelter. And so... Just by asking our community to do things differently, we can reduce intake enough so that we can eliminate uh, euthanasia for space. 
Yeah. Uh, again, it's just a matter of sort of reprogramming relative to there are new and different ways to, to handle that situation. And that's a classic scenario. Obviously, the, the lost or found pet, and I see where I live, all kinds of stuff. But I, I also see sometimes encouragingly people saying, you know, someone will chime in that, that I don't know if they're vets necessarily or just people that, that have like scanners would say, hey, I can come, chi- you know, scan the chip so that we can try to, you know, because otherwise these people are saying I'm, I'm about to take the, the dog to such and such services or whatever. And it seems like even now there's like some thought of intervening and, and saving that step and preventing that from happening. But I guess what, what, what Haas is trying to say is like, let's widen that out and make sure that, that people don't even think about going down that path when there's so many other paths they could go down instead if there's a lost or a found pet somewhere. Right. So what are some others? I mean, obviously at this point, I don't think we have time to discuss in detail all of the elements of, of Haas, but can you outline some of the more notable aspects? I mean, we've kind of touched on one or two uh, sort of incidentally along the way, but just some of the core principles, I guess, that really distinguish Haas. Yep. So there's three that are really important for the public to know. Um, and it's all based on the idea that the the shelter will always exist. So then we don't want to get rid of the shelter. But if we're successful, the only pets that will be in the shelter are pets that truly need to be there. Those that need emergency medical care or are true public safety risk um, or those that have no other viable options. So that will be the end goal. The So what, what needs to happen are three things. One, people that need to rehome their pets can take advantage of supported self-rehoming. And this is the idea that we help you rehome your own pet safely and humanely so that it can avoid the stress of the shelter and so that you can know what happens to that animal along the way. And there's tons of technology out there. If you go to self, if you Google self-rehoming, you'll find several websites. Um, and you can also just use Craigslist, Nextdoor, and other platforms. So that's number one. Number two is lost pet reunification. We need to start asking our communities to help us get lost pets home. Most of them do not need to be coming to the shelter. And once they get to the shelter, their chances of getting home are cut in half or more. So they, it's really unlikely they'll get home once they get into the shelter. And that varies community to community, I, I will say. And then finally, the last one is pet resources do exist. If you face barriers to housing, if you have a medical bill, you can't pay. In many communities and in all of the host communities, uh, there are resources for people to access so that they can keep their pets. So the first thing shouldn't be, I, I, I'm broke, I need to give up my pet. It should be, I'm struggling financially, I really don't know how to get this care for my animal. Uh, where can I turn? And the shelter can provide all of those resources and help connect people to them. So if you are struggling, reach out to your local organization and ask them if they have resources that can help. And, um, yeah, I want to circle back to that one sec, but I just want to let people know again, I went only have tuned in more recently. This is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest is Kristen Hassan, Director of American Pets Alive. And under that umbrella sits uh, Human Animal Support Services, which we're discussing now, which uh, seeks to sort of reinvent animal shelters and improving that whole uh, shelter experience for the animals and the humans. So in our remaining few minutes here, we invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org texting 813-433-0885. So I guess part of Haas that, that I think is important to note, especially in light of what you just said, Kristen, is that there are there are so-called pilot shelters. There are members kind of of this, I guess, coalition, maybe for lack of a better term. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that just because, again, I think that would help people who are listening wherever they're listening and maybe having a particular struggle like we just described, saying, oh, well, if I... Yeah, so we have about... 
23 um, pilot shelters who are helping us utilize their data to learn more about what programs work the best. And then we have about 450 shelters that are participating. So currently there are hot shelters in all 50 states. Um, and the map, if you're curious about Florida or any other state, we do have a map online on our website. It's www.humananimalsupportservices.org. Um, but we encourage you to check it out because we need people to start um, just changing how how they're acting. And we have seen a lot of people in communities, just like uh, all over the country, starting organizations to foster own pets for people in crisis, to get more lost pets home. Anyone can do hot. So you don't have to be a shelter to do these programs. You can just be a good Samaritan, somebody that cares about pets in your community. And you can go on that website and you can implement most of the hot elements yourself. Oh, wow. Okay. I guess I might have missed that in looking over the website because I, I obviously saw that the, you know, there's a good number of shelters that are participating in, in, to, to some extent or another. But that's great. So just uh, as an individual, you can really just do some of the, the Haas elements yourself. Yeah. That's great. So how much of the Human Animal Support Service reflects what I imagine you said to yourself on more than one occasion along the way here? One day, wouldn't it be great if I could lead or oversee an organization that would collect everything I've learned over those years and offer really focused solutions to the key elements of the sheltering crisis. And so what, I'm sorry, what is the question? No, I just, I just wondered how much of kind of Haas and just some of your more recent work, obviously direct the American Pets Alive as well, uh, if it just sort of reflects that you just might have said yourself a few, few times I could, I could imagine along the way that you said to yourself, one day I just hope I could lead an organization or oversee one that collects everything I've learned over all these years and offer really highly focused solutions to the key elements of the sheltering crisis. Yes, I, I think I've benefited from seeing all the ways that shelters need to improve. And uh, I'm just so, it's such an honor to be doing this work now. And we, I want to invite anyone to reach out to me um, through the HOPS website, um, our social media. We're just here to help. This is not a, as much a national org as it is a true collaborative and anyone can be part of HOPS. So uh, if any of your listeners are thinking, I want to get involved, go to that website uh, and reach out. And yeah, we're just, we're proud to be trying to bring everybody together to do better by animals and people. All right. So we're running a little short on time, but I want to get at least one caller in. There's a longer email that I might not be able to read all of, but I'll try to get to at least part of it. So let's, uh, hi, you're on Talking Animals with Kristen Hassan. Yeah. Hi there. Um, I heard you talking about, you know, barriers to adoption, and I know of a local shelter that um, they 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 try to determine whether a dog is good with kids or not, and they put they always they classify so many dogs as unknown about kids or not good with kids, and I know they don't test them with they don't put a kid in front of these dogs. I just I just question that that to me is like a huge barrier to getting a dog adopted when they try to guess whether or not a, a dog might be good or not with kids, just because they're afraid of the liability once the dog is adopted. I don't know if um, you're familiar with any shelter or other shelters. Do they put whether a dog's good with kids or not on all the dogs? Boy, you really hit the nail on the head with that question. Um, we would advise no shelter to say a dog is good or is not good with children because that's a subjective turn at term and Either way, that could open that shelter up to liability because um, what we'd want the shelter to say is has lived with children previously or has not lived with children previously. 
that's a more accurate statement, but we would not invite, advise any shelter to remark on whether a dog is, quote, good with uh, kids or not. Is that Hopefully that, that helps answer your question. You, you are yeah. spot on, though. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Or at least, you know, advise any dog or any person that's going to adopt an animal to supervise, you know, the, the children with a with a dog. That that just seems to be common sense for for, sure. for any for any dog. Okay, All right, thank, thank you, you thank you, thank you so much for your call. Great question, thank you so much. Okay, Kristen. So unfortunately, we have just about reached the end of our time. One question I wanted to get to because it overlaps uh, a question that I unfortunately can't get to that was kind of a part of a longer email. Just the question of funding, how funding for human animal support services uh, works, and where it comes from. Um, absolutely. So we are a tiny, tiny team. We have about six people on our team, and we're funded through a number of grants from national organizations. But if you want to do Haas in your community, people love to give to these programs because people know how much folks are struggling and they're looking for ways to help. Uh, and so these, these kinds of programs are fairly easy to fundraise for in your community uh, if you are working to keep pets and people. So we're seeing a lot of success with folks doing that. And as far as our team, we're relying on the animal welfare movement, um, believing that this is important. And so far they have, uh, they have had our backs 100% because most of the funders, too, know things really need to change, especially in this critical moment in our U.S. history. All right. Well, that's great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Kristen Hassan, and the uh, the website is humananimalsupportservices.org if you want to find out more and see a map and see how you might get involved or if you want to support the Haas uh, efforts, et cetera, that's the place to do it. So, Kristen, thank you so much for uh, joining us on Talking Animals, and uh, this is, just seems so great, and good luck with your ongoing efforts here. Thanks so much for having me, Duncan. You bet. Thank you. In a moment, we'll hear from uh, Hillsborough County Pet Resources Center Director Scott Trebitoski, who will help us sort out the implications of SP60, a bill Governor DeSantis recently signed, which seems designed to end the anonymous reporting of code enforcement infractions. The question for us here today is, does this hamper the reporting of animal neglect and abuse? Because there may not be a path now to do that reporting anonymously. Right now, though, we're going to second him into the Comedy Corner with a piece by Max Rosenblum called Dog people in today's comedy corner on talking animals on WMNF. I don't know if any of you are uh, dog people. Uh, I feel like you're not a dog person unless you bring your dog in to bring your kid to work day. That's when you know you're a dog person. My coworker Jackie loves dogs. She came into work one day, 9 a.m., burst through the door. She's like, Max, you wouldn't believe it. I was out walking Sadie last night and someone was walking their cat. Someone was walking their cat. And I was like, okay, to be fair, that is unusual. But I find it hilarious that people scoff at the idea of people treating their cats like dogs, but they have no problem at all treating their dogs like humans. Do you know what I mean? It's like, where do you get off being like, I'm sorry, are you walking your cat right now? My dog cannot enjoy his brunch while you're walking your cat right now. It is so distracting. My fully clothed dog cannot enjoy his mimosa with your cat on a leash. You guys have been wonderful. My name is Max Rosenblum. That was Max Rosenblum in today's comedy corner of a piece called Dog People, taken from an appearance on the Comedy Time YouTube channel. Now it's time to hear my conversation with Scott Trebitoski, the Hillsborough County Pet Resources Center Director, to help us sort out SB60. So let's welcome back Scott Trotoski to Talk Animals. Good morning, Scott. Good morning. 
Thanks for joining us again on Talking Animals. Let's just dive right in. So Governor DeSantis signed SB 60, I guess about a month or so ago. Uh, the thrust of it, as I understand it, is to remove the cloak of anonymity from code enforcement reports. How do you view SB 60 as it pertains to animals and related reports and things that would be pertinent to the animal world? So I think the intention of SB 60 was to kind of curtail the neighbors fighting neighbors by using code enforcement and animal control to complain about um, non-life-threatening uh, things like the dog pooped in the yard, uh, barking, things like that. Um, but the one thing that is in there, and, and this county is um, taking it to per- still provide a cloak of, of safety and secrecy, is it has a provision that um, that doesn't apply to life-threatening situations. So when you're reporting animal cruelty and abuse and neglect, um, this county is still going to accept that as an anonymous complaint because it is threatening the potential life of, of the pet. So, Scott, then, is that kind of an exception that a county can just put in a provision for that kind of exception, just county by county? Well, the provision is, is in there in general. Okay. Um, and, you know, I think it's intended for, um, you know, if we're going to look at the broader code enforcement, it's, it's going to look at something like, you know, that tragedy down in, in South Florida. You got the building that collapsed. Well, if people knew about that but were afraid that the homeowners association or something was going to take punitive action because it's a, a public life and safety issue, they would be able to report that anonymously. And we've talked with our attorneys and they believe that it is reasonable for us to extend that life and safety um, to pets, even though it may not be specifically in there as a, a It doesn't say human life and safety, so we're going to take the interpretation that that applies to our other family members, our pets. Okay, so I guess by the wording of the bill, there is kind of a gray area, and what you're saying is uh, Hillsborough County is choosing to interpret in a way that still does provide uh, anonymity for reports of neglect or especially abuse so that there wouldn't be a risk of the person reporting that facing, um, you know, uh, any kind of... uh, retaliation or any other issues like that. Yeah, and most of my colleagues that I've talked to around the state are going to be using the same provision, especially when it comes to, like, animal cruelty. But to be 100% up front, it is a part of state statutes that at some point need to be addressed because we've had issues where people have um, fostered an animal that was part of a abuse case or, you know, custody of the animal had been given to the county and we've adopted it out to somebody else. And then these people get out of prison, do a public records request and show up on these people's porches saying, where's my animal? Mm. And um, it's something the animal Florida Animal Control Association has been trying to craft something that the state legislature would allow a limited exemption for like the people who are helping the animal cruelty because there is a, there is a risk out there and the last thing I'd want to see is one of those people get hurt or killed before the 
before the legislature would take it seriously. Yeah. Well, okay, that's really interesting. So, because uh, it really does sound like it's county by county. One of the reasons why I wanted to have this conversation is uh, a longtime listener kind of flagged this for me that lives in um, Pinellas. And my understanding from what he uh, sent me in this uh, in this email is he said, I think in Pinellas, the SB60 is implemented uh, unless the uh, informant is willing to put themselves at risk by providing name and address, which is a public record that will be given to the animal abuser. Pinellas County Animal Services will not take the complaint. So that seems uh, like kind of the flip side of what you're saying is going to happen in Hillsborough. Yet it sounds like if I follow you that the Pinellas could choose to make the same kind of interpretation that Hillsborough has made. Yeah, it, it is definitely a gray area, but I've talked with, you know, I've been doing this for over 20 years. I've talked with a lot of colleagues around the state, and we've always treated animal cruelty as a, as a sort of allowing the anonymous, even if our counties have sort of shied away from anonymous. And I think one of the, one of the things that is difficult is that Animal control is this really weird, it's not law enforcement, it's not code enforcement, it kind of falls in between the two, and when laws like this are passed for code enforcement, there are some counties who say, well, we're not code enforcement, or we are code enforcement, and we're going to interpret it um, a a different way, and and I think ultimately it's, it's a gray enough area that they'll probably be a trial case somewhere, but our county is choosing to fall on the side of uh, let's protect the animals and let's protect the people reporting cruelty. Yeah, and if the court re- if the court tells us otherwise, we'll deal with I- that then. We'll deal with that then. And, yeah, and maybe we'll tell our legislature, yeah, you need to go fix it. But yeah, as we see right now, we believe that the legislative intent was to protect the safety, and we consider the safety of the people or the family to include our our pets. Yeah. So you know, it, it may be a different interpretation, but it's one I'm very comfortable with, and um, I think that you know sometimes the legislature doesn't always isn't always able to see the minutia. And right. If they knew that this was a risk, they would have clarified tightened it up. Probably, yeah. Because yeah, it sounds like there's there's gray area about the way the 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 law is written, and then there's gray area from county to county. It sounds like too, from your standpoint, about where and how that enforcement of that falls so that, I mean, the plus side is that you and, and Hillsborough and others, I guess, that are probably following the same path, you know, can kind of choose to in, interpret it and, and um, you know, make sure that no one is uh, unprotected when there's an abuse case that needs to be dealt with. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think we we try to do the, the balance of we understand the legislative intent to yeah. stop wasting resources for, you know, my dog, my neighbor's dog always gets up, right. my neighbor's dog poops in the yard. Yeah, um, because we know, and especially I haven't done this as long as I've done it. There, there are clearly cases where code and, and animal control, and probably every other county department, are used yeah. to put neighbor against neighbor. All right, so, Scott. Well, I'm I'm sorry we're at the end of our time, but this is super helpful, and I appreciate it. It's talking animals on WNF Tampa. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. Bye bye.